Hello there, this is Lisa Borders, and on this podcast, I'll connect with people from all walks of life. We'll talk about overcoming adversity, transmuting the shadow, and moments of illumination. We'll explore what it means to fulfill our potential while maintaining our most authentic selves. And we'll reflect on the lessons we're learning all along the way. If you feel inspired by what you hear, subscribe wherever you're listening, leave a five-star review, share it with a friend, and join the community at lisaborders.us. Thank you for joining me, and this is Enlightened. Hello, Wendy Clark. So great to see you. And great to see you, Lisa. Thank you for having me. Oh, I'm so pleased to have you. I'm so delighted that we have this opportunity. You and I spend so much time talking, whether it's on text or whether it's on the phone and this time on a podcast. So I'm so delighted to capture the energy and capture all the love that we feel for one another. Lots of mutual respect here. Very mutual. Absolutely. So Wendy, you and I met when we worked at the Coca-Cola company, but before we talk about our relationship and how we met as professionals and have grown to be very close BFFs, I will call it. Talk a little bit about yourself and give me some context for who you are, because when I met you, you were larger than life and you were running marketing. And I was so impressed and remain impressed about the skill set you have as a corporate executive, but that didn't happen overnight. Give me a little context for who Wendy is and how she came to be. Oh, thank you. I think these conversations are important because I do think people can come into your life at this age or this level of experience. I've worked almost 30 years now. I'm almost 50 years old. And they see someone that looks probably far different than I looked when I was 25 or in my early 20s entering the workforce or even in my mid-30s as I was navigating mid-management. I was raised by a single mom. I'm the only child of parents who separated when I was three. I don't recall my parents living together. My father was British. My mother's American. So I grew up in Britain and then my mother wanted to return and be close to her aging parents when I was about 11. And I was given a choice in the early 80s at 11 years old to stay with my father and my stepmother mother and my three half sisters and continue to live in the only country I'd ever known or do something crazy and get on an airplane and fly one way to the place where Mickey Mouse lived and people ate hamburgers full time as far as I could tell from TV. And that was an easy decision to make at age 11. And so my mom and I, just the two of us, hugely brave on my mother's part, sold everything she owned. We shipped a couple of antiques that she had, and I was allowed to put stuffed animals in the drawers of everything that was on the ship that was an antique, and that was it. And then the suitcases we could take on the plane, and when we really left with nothing and started anew moving to Florida. My experience then was I was a little British girl in Bradenton, Florida, which probably hadn't seen very many little British girls in the early 80s. And I proceeded to go from one school to the next. In the space of five years, I went to five different schools. And, and, And that probably was the most shaping experience of my life, having to, in my teenage years, you're 
uncomfortable enough as a teenager, certainly as a young woman, becoming a woman, and then having to restart five years in a row, the the first one being in in England and then four successive school changes in the US. And I bounced all over. I went from uh, a school that in in Bradenton to then a school that was busing kids in to equalize the mix of kids to a private Christian school, and then to a very huge size uh, high school. It never repeated. It was not the same. There was nothing to draw on from that. If you had met me in ninth grade, which was my final of fifth you know, school in five years, I was a very shy, completely withdrawn child, quite honestly. I was up in my own mind. I think you retreat in moments like that, at least when you're unsure you do. And I was going to my fifth school in five years, quite honestly. And I knew the drill. And I knew that I'd just sit in the corner and keep to myself and maybe make a friend or two at some point. And so, of course, to contrast that with me today. Winnie, you are totally the opposite (laughs) of that today. Totally. Wouldn't be recognizable. But I think that those are the experiences that shape you. And I'm awfully glad, I guess, in retrospect, I went through it. My single mother used to get me packed up and maybe give me a little shove as I went out the door in the morning. And she told me it was character building. And so here I am full of character. (laughs) But yeah, I ended up staying at that high school for four years. I then went on to university. I would say university was the time where I really flourished. I always reference being a part of a sorority. That was a very important aspect of my life, having sisters as a an only child living in the sorority house with 50 other women was an absolute thrill to someone who had felt like a loner most of her life. And I think the sorority taught me how to make friends, be a friend, and actually early leadership. I held two leadership positions in the sorority. And so that that was a transformative part. I went in and came out quite differently into university. And so we all have a story. That's mine. Wendy, I love that story because I Don't recognize that little girl in you today. The heart is there, the ability to navigate not just a cocktail party room, but a corporate boardroom. So I can see how the skill sets were perhaps developed and honed over time. But let's come forward to when you and I met, because no one would ever have guessed you were a shy anything. I would not believe you could even spell the word shy. I met you at Coca-Cola, but the most vivid memory I have is of you giving a presentation in front of a conference room full of people and you had one slide and it had a graphic on it and you spoke for at least an hour and everyone was transfixed on every word. You had captivated the entire audience. How did you go from shy little girl to being the center of attention and being able to grab people by the virtual lapels and pull them into the story that you were telling at that moment about the Coca-Cola company? I don't perfectly know, but the word I tend to use a lot around my story is improbable, or at least I used to use that. And so people would say a lot of times in interviews, you get that, tell me one word that describes you. And I'd say, ah, improbable. And I'd tell some of that backstory that you just heard and an American mother and a British father and how the fact that they even met and managed to create me before they separated. All these things felt really improbable to me. I think as I've gone through my journey and started to own 
my story and own what I can do and accept the things that I can't. I've started to realize that word actually was misspelled and there should be an apostrophe in a space and really lived into the fact that I'm probable. And I think it's a really important pivot that I couldn't have made probably in my 20s or maybe into my 30s. As I rounded into my 40s, I started to realize that I had to let go of that narrative of being improbable and really live into the fact that I was willing to bet on myself. I was willing to be brave when I needed to be. I took what many people would call risks in my career and tried new things and leapt when it made sense. And so I haven't shied away from those things. And in fact, I think if you come from perhaps meager beginnings, I'm not someone has anything to lose. I'm living a life I never thought was afforded to me. I never thought it would be possible. And so if it all ended tomorrow, if it all packed up and went away, I would reflect on the last 50 years and go, that was really fun. Feel okay, job done, which actually informs a little bit now of how I I think about working. It, It has so little to do with my own accomplishment now, 30 years later. I've done things I never thought I'd do. When I speak to our teams and I talk about our business, you you start to get into this area of legacy work. I want to leave Dentsu better than I found it. I want the 40,000 people at Dentsu to have careers they never thought possible and achieve things they never thought they could do. I want to make sure the industry, the advertising industry is thriving and, and robust and can stand on its two legs and go forward for centuries to come. And I want to make sure I put a few fingerprints on that and say that was made better by the time I spent here. So th- those things all sort of start to transcend your own person and you start to think beyond that. But to the question on how those people, the person you saw at Coke and and that person are the same person. I think it's putting one foot in front of the other, making sure you live into what you think your potential is, what you can do, believing in yourself, being surrounded by wonderful mentors and friends who encourage you and remind you to believe in yourself and the, the things that you can do. Calling yourself when you need to be checked, when you haven't done something, making sure you're always willing to learn, but realizing that failure is a tattoo and not a bruise, a bruise, not a tattoo, so that backwards, that, that it will sting for a while, but, but that you'll move on, it won't be permanent, and that you and that it just ensuring that you learn from it. And those are all the things that kind of race through my mind when I think about the A to the B in, in that scenario. It seems to me that each of us you, me, and those like us, particularly women, we evolve over time, hopefully for the better. We take the experiences, the exposures that we've had and develop some form of expertise from a functional standpoint, perhaps in business. But then as individual people, hopefully we're growing too. And I know I've had some experiences where I may have believed one thing on day one, but on day 10, I've gone through some experience that has really changed my perspective and really brought my thinking to a new level, whether it be more holistic, whether it be better informed, whether it be slowed down so I could consider more possibility. Have you ever had experiences like that where you were thinking one thing and behaving one way and you went through something Oftentimes for me, it's been a crisis or something adverse, Mm -hmm. but it could also be something positive and fun and at a higher level than you expected. Have you had experiences like that where you came out on the other side enlightened, so to speak? 
It's interesting being in the advertising business as a baseline because uh, we have the privilege of working with some of the best business minds and marketing minds in the world. Uh, Dentsu works with 89 of the top 100 advertisers. And by definition, spending time with our clients, you're shaped and changed by a narrative or a time together. The very shaping thing about our business is actually pitching. And pitching is a sort of it sounds like an arcane thing when I even say that we now, that we go in and we suit up and we pitch our wares, but we do. And it's just part and parcel to our business. But it is, what's interesting about pitching is it's time bound. And so you have a deadline, you're forced to deliver in that time frame. There's no extensions. There's no, no extra innings. You're either ready or you're not. And, and so I think it, 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 there's, there's, there's something that very honing about that and driving about that experience. And of course, in the, and again, in the agency business, this happens repeatedly. It's not a one-time event. Uh, and some of those, when you go through that experience, I can readily off the top of my head speak about the toughest losses and they stick to you for so much time. And then as a leader, you've taken, you've got all these people together. I mean, we do these big global pitches where people from 14 different countries are together and you're pulling ideas and you're aggregating into presentations and you're, you go through 16, 20 weeks of meetings with a client. These are quite transformative experiences. And then you come second. And it is, it, it is a dejecting experience. It is rejection at the highest level. And I, you know, I would say perhaps a skill I've learned in the last five years as I've been on the agency side of the business is resilience because you really get rejected a lot in the agency business. It's like batting averages. If we're winning 30 to 40% of our pitches right now, we're winning as much as anyone. So by definition, you're losing always more than you're winning. It's very rare that you're winning every pitch. And so that, that rejection, I can remember when I first started at the, my previous job at DDB, it felt terrible. And it felt further amplified for me by the fact that I was the leader. And while everyone was feeling dejected, they were all looking at me and going, well, what's she going to do? What's her next move? Do we just all sit here? And I'm literally busy unfriending people on Facebook going, I'll never talk to them again. They rejected us. (laughs) 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 And our head of business development, no, you stay friends with them. You're going to check in with them in six weeks. These things don't always work out. And I'm like, the hell I am. I'm never talking to these people again. They have rejected. And it was, I can laugh about it now, but it was such a test of my leadership in the beginning to try to put a well, a smile on it, but but a positive spin even to say, no, oh, that this crucible experience was good. There's learning in this. We must push forward. And yet that's what you've got to do because everyone's exhausted. Everyone's gone through it. Everyone's given their very best. And there's this sort of immediate vote that your very best wasn't good enough. And it just feels demoralizing, but you live and you learn. And what I learned as a leader was, it was imperative that I got up, brushed off, and moved on quickly. Not in a way of disregarding what had happened, but fully owning it and saying there'll be another day and there'll be another opportunity. And we, we need to share in our commiseration. We need to let that out. We need to understand. And we do need to learn. Always in failure, there's learning. But that it will be okay and that this will not mark forever. And, and it was hard. Because I didn't want to, I can tell you. And the ones that really hurt, you just want to curl up in a ball and feel sorry for yourself. But leaders don't get to do that. We have to lead by example. If you do, no one wants to follow you anymore, but I I can appreciate the feeling, been there, done that, 
just like you and have a couple of t-shirts, as we might say. I can recall my mother telling me that failure wasn't fatal. It was feedback. That it was information that you needed to take in and really use it to fuel your next step. That shows you in a professional life. Can you step back for a second and talk about how it made you feel? And did you feel, you you talked about unfriending people, which is a very (laughs) natural response, but ultimately I know you didn't stay there because I know you too well. Where did you come out? Were there rituals or things that you had to do for you? Did you have to go away for a week? Did you have to sit down and read a book, take a hot bath, light a candle, say a prayer? What did you do to make sure that you stayed grounded in the face of adversity or a pitch not going well after 20 weeks of work and 87 phone calls and all those meetings? I think what I realized was you always take things so personally, right? Yeah. I I don't, I I really don't like it when people tell me that it's business and it's not personal. Uh, Business is deeply personal. Every every minute I spend doing work, I'm not with my family. Therefore I've decided to make that choice and it becomes very personal to me. So I don't embrace that, that sense of there's business and then there's personal life. This is all very personal. It's how we choose our time. We bring our full selves to work. We say that every day. We want all everyone to bring their full. Well, if I'm bringing my full self, you're going to get my personal side. You can get my professional side. So I think in the reckoning, I just learned that resilience was a skill I didn't have. That was quite obvious off the bat that I needed it to be a, a better human being that that resilience was a good skill that could be applied in life. And I really set about working on it. I get very motivated, particularly from the leadership requirements of the job. And I recognize that our teams needed to see me be resilient. And so I, I just summoned myself to do it. I do think it's always easier. And again, I always think of you from a similar background because your childhood was not easy and there were some challenges in your childhood. I think when you've gone through that early adversity, it's quite easy to go to a place where you're like, oh God, this isn't bad. You should see. It's just, it, it, I, I can quite easily get to, I'm feeling sorry myself or the team's feeling down. I think, gosh, in the scheme of things, in the context of things, we still have a thriving business. We have a lot of other clients that want us to work on their business. There are more opportunities in our pipeline. Gosh, look at us. We're all healthy. We're, we all have a paycheck. We all, you, you, I can get quite contemplative and, and cut to that quite quickly. Having had adversity early on and having some knocks, you can put it in perspective pretty quickly and go, this isn't bad, guys. It, it will be fine. We will build back. We will learn from this. We will get better. Let me ask you this, because so well said, I have found throughout my career, when things didn't work out from time to time, you might unfriend somebody, I would compartmentalize and put that in a box and not let it out. And it was much more of a defense mechanism, as opposed to dealing with it. And I know young women ask me all the time, how do you deal with it? And I realized I wasn't dealing with it. I was just putting it in the box and the box wasn't getting emptied. And pretty soon the box was full. And when I would get angry or when I would lose patience, I was really angry, not about whatever was happening at that moment. It was all that pent up emotion and unprocessed adversity. And so I too recognize not only is resilience important, 
but working through the emotions and allowing yourself to feel, because I didn't do that. We were, as women are taught, we shouldn't do that, at least not in corporate America. It's not welcomed. Have you experienced that as well? Yeah, sure. I think uh, to your point, particularly for women, it's, I remember an early mentor of mine saying to me, die before you cry. That was her mantra. I was 26 years old. I'll never forget it. She said, don't, because I had gone into our general manager and just (laughs) boohooed. Because I was exhausted and overworked and frustrated and everything else and didn't know what else to do. And at 26 years old, I went to the general manager's office and said, you've got to give me some help. I can't do this anymore. And I'm excited. I'm working weekends and unloaded um, to middle-aged, older man. And he had no idea what to do with all of that. It just tumbled out in front of him. And when I went back, she said, I think I was wiping my eyes and he did what he could to make me feel better. But she said, no, don't do that. And I, to be honest, I don't know that is useful advice. I've never repeated that advice, by the way. I think you have to be who you are. Yet still, day 97 on my new job, I've already cried in front of this team of 40,000 people. There are very emotional, <laughs> there are very emotional moments right now during a pandemic. I mean, we are dealing with things that make us emotional as people. And so I think if it's a loss or if it's a disappointment, I've stood in front of the agency, my former agency and apologized when I made a very bad decision and error of judgment. I stood up in front of all of them and cried and apologized. And the apology came from the fact that I had failed them. I think the worst emotion you can feel is disappointment, that you've disappointed someone is a terrible feeling. So I don't know that we should obscure our emotions. I think when they are genuinely felt, I think there's a place for it. Again, the point we're making before, we always say, bring your full self to work. As we certainly, as we lean into diversity and inclusion, we say we we want this place to be a place that you can be celebrated for exactly who you are. Emotions are exactly who you are too. So I think that we have to make room for how people best be themselves. Because the, the, the math to this and the psychology to this is when I feel fully embraced, when I feel secure enough to be myself, be my full self, I do my best work. And I think we can all reflect on the times when we've done our best work, we felt the most accepted, the most embraced, the most invited, the most wanted by the team we were working with, by the organization we were working for. That's when our best work comes out of us. That's when we flourish. So yes, to, to the point of compartmentalization, I will say this: someone about a, a couple of years ago said to me, your chief skill is that you compartmentalize really well. And I think that that probably is true for jobs that have a, a lot of moving parts. You can say spinning plates. I think you do have to be able to compartmentalize. I think it's compartmentalizing, but not shutting the lid on that so that you're not dealing with it. So if it's in a compartment, it needs to be open. You can go in now, the compartment. So I think compartmentalization actually can be a skill and it can be a, a survival mechanism and technique. I think obscuring things and not dealing with them will only make them greater ultimately. I think you're absolutely right. And I was guilty of obscuring them and only have recently learned to actually deal with whatever is going on at some point. It might not be that particular moment, but this notion of bringing your whole self to work, you are spot on with that analysis, but this is a relatively new phenomenon, Wendy. I'm 63. I just turned 63 and I too have worked 40 years. And I can recall in the first 10, 20, maybe even 30 years, 
no one wanted to see, or it, I was not under the impression that people wanted to see my full self. So I want to tell everyone that is within the sound of our voices, it's a new day and people really do need to bring their full self to work. It is a new phenomenon, but if you can't bring your full self to work, maybe you're at the wrong place. What do you totally. think? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think, uh, I just can't even imagine. And certainly, of course, in advertising with creative people, people tend to be even more colorful in every that can be colors of tattoos, by the way, or <laughs> hair or and that self-expression is part and parcel of who people are. I just can't imagine saying to people, uh, we don't accept people of whatever we insert uh, definition here. And you know what I say about this to our teams a lot when we get onto it, because I, I can't get evangelical about it. Imagine the opposite. So people might say, we were just saying, gosh, this is a new phenomenon, but the opposite sounds deadly to me. Can you imagine being at a company that was just this homogenous, same from a cookie cutter, everyone had the same beliefs, had the same practices, looked the same, dressed the same, thought the same, drove the same car. I'm making an extreme point, but it is through our diversity of experiences. It is through our diversity of backgrounds that we come together. And it's just this wonderful jambalaya of know-how and not, and you think, I, I, I couldn't assemble this if I tried with my singular brain or someone who had just had my same lived experiences. There's no way we could get to these outcomes. So we always say it's better for business. And I truly mean it. I cannot imagine that our business could lift off if all of us had this uniform, homogenized, monoculture background. It would be a death knell for our business. So this is about, I want us to have the broadest aperture possible when we look into the world. I do think one of the hidden challenges in diversity and inclusion. Now, I think we, we, we at least starting to own and get our arms around some of the obvious areas, whether that's gender or race, culture, sexuality, ability, age. We have a lot of those in front of us. I think one of the more obscure ones is socioeconomic diversity. And I think advertising rightly could be accused of being uh, a classist culture and industry, that it's for the affluent and for the wealthy. We tend to be, pre-pandemic at least, in very expensive urban centers. We're in New York, we're in Chicago, we're in San Francisco, we're in London, we're in Tokyo, we're in Paris. This is not easy to enter this industry. The, the starting salaries are very low. We cost of living is very high where we tend to be located. This has been quite obscured and unavailable to people of different backgrounds socioeconomically. And we're really starting to work. I'm working with a, a young team in the industry right now about how do we tear down the classism and the socioeconomic disparity of access to our industry. And again, this is all about I want to recruit from the broadest pool possible. If we're leaving some bright, intelligent, brilliant people off on the side here because they couldn't possibly afford rent in New York City, so they can't even consider coming to work for us, then whose loss is that? It's, not, it's my loss. It's our business's loss. It's our client's loss. So I, I think these are really important to really dig down and lower into the, all the places that you might be obscuring people from joining your organization unintentionally, but I think you have to own it. Point taken and well said, but I think as I look across industries, marketing, your industry, ad agents, you are not alone, Wendy, unfortunately, nor is your sector or your industry. 
even things like higher education, we are seeing affordability just not possible for the lion's share of not only Americans, but all citizens across the globe. So in terms of diversity and inclusion, I have often heard many people become very frightened and very defensive when you start talking about diversity. So your perspective is refreshing, but it's not pervasive, truth be told, at least from my experience. Most people that I've run into, particularly in corporate America, have this profound fear of diversity. And part of it, I think, stems from not so much that they don't understand potential benefits, but they see the world as a zero-sum game. And then if mm. one person gets more mm. than they get, they or their child or their family will not be in the best position. So I have often said to them, listen, if you were making a cake or you were playing a sport, would you have five quarterbacks or would you have offense, defense? Or if you were making a cake, would you just put eggs or would you put butter and vanilla and oil? And they understand it conceptually, but as a, at a practical level, it really makes them nervous. As you've talked to other CEOs, what are you, not just in your industry, but as you talk to other peers across mm -hmm. industries. What is the thinking? Because it's true. Perhaps people didn't wake up and say, I only want to be in an urban center. You were competing as an agency to look the part mm -hmm. and being on Park Avenue in New York was a piece of that. So they weren't trying to exclude necessarily. They were perhaps trying to distinguish and differentiate, but the unintended consequence is folks got left out. Mm -hmm. So what are you hearing as are people becoming more enlightened around diversity, equity, inclusion? Because the way you describe it, there's real benefit to your business. And that's what all the empirical studies say today, whether you want to read about them or whether you want to believe them or not, they are there. What are you hearing from your peers? I think, thankfully, some of those thoughts that you were speaking to that sound so restrictive and arcane, I think, candidly, are just aging out of the business. Those are bygone leadership thoughts. I think you see the new leaders coming up. Certainly, 20-somethings, 30-somethings, 40-somethings are enlightened from this. I reflect on my own children, my oldest in college. She has no other perspective than this. It, 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 it's just, it, so you're seeing the turnover generationally, thankfully. And so I look at our own business, 40 plus thousand people. Our median age in our business is 27, 27 wow. years old, median age. So guess what the expectations of the median age in my company are? They look very different uh, from what an, an older aged organization might be. And I want to be careful not to be ageist when I say that. I, I, I just simply mean that their lived experience as a 27-year-old here now in 2020 is very different from my lived experience as a 49-year-old. And their expectations, therefore, are different. And so we are having to, we, if that's our median age, we're having to live to their expectations and deliver on their expectations and be an organization that embraces everything they believe in if we want them to stay with us. And so I tend to see that across our clients. We get to work with big clients like P&G who believe in being that they'll be a force for good in the world is their language, that they'll force for growth and a force for good. All of our clients now have social impact agendas that include diversity, equity, inclusion goals, as well as environmental commitments. I think the transparency with which 
businesses now have to operate the expectations of consumers when they're buying a product on the shelf they're going let me understand where you sourced the ingredients in this product let me understand your labor practices and how you pay pay your people let me understand your offset in the environment and how you're trying to be a, a net zero emissions company consumers are smart and they are they are studying and they're understanding brands and companies more and more and i think that in and of itself, an empowered, informed consumer can drive an awful lot of change in the way that business is led and run. And you see the knock-on effects. So I feel incredibly hopeful about this. The other thing, as you were talking, I was reflecting, again, lived experiences. When I joined Coca-Cola, I was the only female direct report for my boss at the time. And there was a, a heavy rumor, which I heard going around the halls, that the reason I got the job was because of my gender, not because of my experience. And I'm sure you too have, I'm sure you've heard it even more than I've heard it. So that those things that define you can become a, a proxy or a replacement for your capability. In that moment, you're annoyed, right? You're fairly frustrated. You feel underestimated. I'm like, I had, I've had a decent career till now. I went through an interview process that was a competitive process run by an external recruiter. I'm sitting here. And you can either, you can make two choices in that. You can buy into the narrative that you hear. Okay, I'm here because I'm a woman and I'll be that person. Or you can decide in that moment, huh, this is interesting because I think I'm here because of my capability, but you think I'm here because of my gender. And if I'm only here because of my gender, you're putting the bar way down for me because you think I'm not capable. I thought the bar was way up high, but apparently it's way down low because I'm not capable and I'm just here because of my gender. And so what you do in that moment is you decide to use that underestimation and you make it fuel. You put it in the tank and you go, all right, let's just see how this works out. And it's game on. Because I will outwork, I will outrun. I, you want a skipping contest? I will outskip. I will do whatever is required to, to crush that expectation. And I think I, I just offer that as counsel to people to remember not to buy into those underestimations of you, but rather to use them as fuel, put them in the tank, and then just crush that thought that someone had and remind them never to underestimate the next person. And that has served me pretty well. I think that's a magnificent learning. And you and I are so alike in so many ways. I happen to be African-American. Yes. And a woman. And so I've often had the two check marks. You're here because you're black and because you're a woman. And I too have tried to use that underestimation as an impetus to do even more than anyone ever could have expected. But let me just pivot to the last thing I want to talk about today, because you and I could talk forever about <laughs> really so good. many things. But I want to talk about our friendship and how you reached out when I came to the Coca-Cola company. Neither you nor I grew up there. We both came in from the outside. And I can remember feeling alone, feeling I had a wonderful job running the Global Foundation. My maternal grandparents had worked at the Coca-Cola company for a combined 45 years. My grandfather as a chauffeur for one of the first presidents for 30 years and my grandmother as a maid. So 45 years of combined mm. service. And I thought the least I could do is come in here and work five years and make it 50. And I remember not feeling as warm or welcomed as I might have wanted to feel. And you were there to reach out to me. Can you tell me why you did that? 
two things are going through my mind. I'll answer the direct question. And then I think there's a point to be made about culture. But the direct reason was because I had felt that cold shoulder of the culture and of the company. I had felt like, as I was saying, the, the rumors in the halls were clear. There was a reason I was there and it wasn't because of my capability. I had felt how the culture and the company could shun. I don't think it means to shun. You and I and all of the people who've had the privilege of working at Coke, including your maternal grandparents, would say it is a wonderful company, a giving company, a generous and kind company. But it's also a company of highly accomplished people. Very smart, very brilliant people work there. And so they are quite discriminatory in their own right around intellect. If they And they've got a high bar when you come in and they'll be over in the corner watching you just to wait and see before they levy their opinion. And that as an outsider can feel very unwelcoming. And by the way, you can see it destabilizing and making people feel a little bit nervous. And I could spot that what I had felt in you. And I immediately thought you were dynamic and accomplished and exactly not only what the foundation needed, but the the company. And I wanted you to stay. I wanted you to know that I wanted you to stay and that I knew you could be successful at the company, but you just have to push through that, that slightly cool exterior, that slightly cool welcome to get to the warm place in the company where you can feel lifted up and supported. And so I was just, I saw someone like-minded. I saw someone I knew I could learn from. I saw someone that I wanted to spend time with. And so I was quite happy when you responded positively to my outreach and and we enjoyed a a wonderful reciprocal relationship supporting one another during those years. And I'm so thankful for that because there were moments where you caught me and propped me back up and said, no, girl, you're going to get back up and you're going to go forward. And I hope I did the same for you. You absolutely did the same for me. And I, like you, still revere the Coca-Cola company. I'm still a shareholder. I believe in the work that they are doing. And we drink Coca-Cola beverages, the milk, the tea, the water. (laughs) But at the same time, having met you there and having gone through the entry process, which was not as smooth as I would have liked for it to be, you helped smooth that path. So Let me thank you. You helped enlighten me not only about the culture, but about my ability to to be resilient in a new environment. I had done it before, but all of us from time to time need someone who can stand by our side, number one, and just be kind. Mm -hmm. I would tell you, you were so kind to not only recognize my challenge, but address it without making me feel less of a person. So I want to thank you for that. Oh, thank you. Look, we have a a friendship and a massive mutual admiration these years later. And I can't imagine not having you in my life and having benefited from all of your support, your wisdom, your isms. I I use all of your sayings all the time and then I pay it forward. So what you give me, I give others. So you've impacted a whole sea of people. We will continue to share with one another, but you have been so gracious with your time to share, not only with me, but for those who are listening. And we have been through some trials and some tribulations. You and I have been through valleys and we have been to the mountaintop together. And I want to continue that with you as my friend. Let me thank you so much, Wendy Clark, CEO, Dinsu. Love you, girl. Love you back. Thank you, Lisa. Bye. All right, everyone. That was this week's episode of Enlightened. 
I hope you learned something new and feel inspired to meet any challenge you may be facing in life. If you enjoy the energy we're creating here, subscribe wherever you're listening. Leave a five-star review, share it with a friend, and join the Enlightened community for bonus episodes and deeper discussions at lisaborders.us. Thanks for joining me, and I'll see you next week.